Hi, my name is Andrew Amen, and I've beat the often path by trying to build a venture studio through bootstrapping and building products repeatedly after each other instead of trying to raise capital. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. Joining us today is the CEO of 923 Venture Studio, an award-winning software design and engineering firm. His company helps launch startups and products, developing apps, IoT devices, that's Internet of Things, and software. Well, they've built several clients' products and helped them get to over a billion dollars in valuation, and they've been featured in the Inc. 5000 two years in a row. I'm a digital agency owner myself, and for me, Andrew represents someone a few steps further ahead in the process, so I'm very excited about the wisdom contained in this show. In this episode, we're going to talk shop about how you can go from being a freelancer to a business owner and how you can scale a business while still taking care of your family and having free time for yourself. This man has some great insights into practically building a multi-million dollar business while building other businesses. So if you've ever had the entrepreneurial itch or you just aren't quite sure what the next step should be, this one is for you. Welcome to the show, Andrew. It's a pleasure to have you here. So you have taken some interesting turns in your own life. Explain to us how you got into this line of work and where you began. Because I saw something about a nuclear submarine. (sighs) Yeah, that was the beginning of my journey. I, uh, for the first five years of my life out of college, I uh, worked on nuclear submarines down in Groton, Connecticut. I was at the beginning, I was just a mechanical engineer. Well, just a mechanical engineer, but I, that's what I was doing is, is I was responsible for the hovering pump on the Ohio class and the Los Angeles class. From there, I moved into the program office, which is building higher end um, or more advanced nuclear submarine technologies and capabilities. And from that path, I basically... Uh, ventured into program building or, or, or design building of, of how hardware can be transferred into software. And so I worked on a supply chain algorithm and supply chain efficiencies, uh, which allowed me to create three patents in the United States for supply chain um, efficiencies, trying to reduce the, the complications that supply chains have when they're trying to locate parts on a shop floor. That makes sense. So how did you get into nuclear submarines in the first place? Was that something you were always interested in or? No. So I was a software engineer in school and when in college and for the first two years in the group, like the teamworks of stuff, when I was starting to introduce myself to trying to learn how software engineering works, I realized how far behind I was even by my software year. I, I didn't practice it in high school. I didn't have an understanding of computer coding language coming into it. And so I, I felt behind. And so I switched to mechanical engineering, which is was more relevant to kind of my skill set. Solving problems was always something I was very interested in, but also building a large component and seeing how it works and then understanding the movements and the efficiencies of that product, I think really catered well to my skill set. And when you're, I went to University of Connecticut, but when you graduate right around Connecticut there, they have Pratt & Whitney, which builds a lot of the airplanes. They have, um, Sikorsky, which does the helicopters, obviously electric boat does the nuclear submarines. Uh, And so the job fairs are catered around a lot of military applicants, a lot of individuals that understand what uh, products can be built in that area, which is just so happens to be military equipment. And so when you're getting job offers, I got a few. One was like an elevator company, Otis. Uh, Another one was uh, (laughs) Hamilton Sunstrand. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Uh, Hamilton Sunstrand, which is another military, and then Electric Boat. It was just pretty cool to get a job offer from a nuclear submarine builder, and I thought that was a great opportunity. So you just went there because it sounded the coolest? Pretty much. But it's also, when you're in Connecticut, you kind of get the options. You can build 
Right. Tanks, planes, or submarines, I guess. <laughs> I did not know that about Connecticut. I just yeah. know it as a wealthy retreat for New Yorkers who are tired of the city. That's the only thing I know about Connecticut. <laughs> I've never even visited the state. Is that where you uh, are now? No, I'm in Boston, Massachusetts, okay. and Connecticut's okay. not all right. like that. The closer to New York you get is like that, but well, I came, I grew up in, uh, well, I was, uh, I was working on submarines in New London, and New London's a, a fisherman's town. It's a Navy yard. Uh, so there's, it's a very different aspect than the New York City. Uh, right, I've got to make a, a pilgrimage out that way because I, I don't know nothing, yeah. nothing about the state. I think I have a cousin that lives there, but it, it's fast. Okay, so you, <laughs> you take this opportunity. I, I don't want to say on a whim, but it was just the most appealing at a time. And you do this, you develop a couple patents, you learn about supply chain. So obviously, it sounds very strange to go f to make the leap from that to now doing app and software development. So how did you make that transition and why did you get out of the first line of work? Yeah, so when I was developing the patents for the supply chain efficiencies, I, I was very excited about bringing something new to the world. And it took two to three years to really go from conceptualizing an idea to pitching it 20 times to the same individuals, hoping that they would appreciate that this is not only saving them time, but the return on investment was like six months. So it was a very obvious efficiency improvement for that supply chain. And in doing that process, it was very interesting to be an entrepreneur because I was building something new, not for myself, but for the company. And I realized I was very good at that process. And so after the two to three years of building it, my job was basically to go around the world and install this, this new technology into other facilities. And so I was traveling and trying to figure out how to convince people to also build this. But I realized I can do this myself. Like I need to find a co-founder that can code, but software is really where I find my, my strengths and I can pitch and I can sell software and I can understand how a new idea can return on an investment for a company. And that's a skill set that I had acquired, but I also realized if I was able to do it for myself, there was a larger upside. So it took you know three years of traveling around, but I finally met my co-founder in 2012. And the two of us came up with our first idea, which was a digital card replacement app. A digital what replacement app? A digital business card replacement app. Oh, okay. So Got we, it. it was called Inigo from Inigo Montoya. Hello. You hey, I love that movie. That's my favorite that. book and favorite book of all time. <laughs> yeah. Princess Bride. Nice. Great, <laughs> I'm a fan. Great movie. Great book. And yeah, the yes. sticker was, hello, my name is. And that's where we <laughs> replace the business cards. Okay. I'm with you. <laughs> very good. Very good. Okay, so you, you decided that you knew that you had a weakness, let's say, in software, so you found a co-founder who was better at it. So what, what made you think that you could be in a software? Because now you develop apps, you develop Internet of Things tech. Mm -hmm. What made you think that you could do that? Typically, the people who find themselves in this situation are themselves coders. What made you realize that I could build this business? I just need somebody else to be a part of it. Yeah, I, I think it was more the inspiration of building a business that didn't have a boss. I think that was the original yeah. goal is I wanted to be home. I didn't want to work in an office. And I also, I kind of desperately wanted to show the world that I was capable of, of reinventing something that was new. And so the business card opportunity was the first, you know, parlay into kind of investigating if it's possible. And luckily I found a co-founder that was willing to go along with the ride with me. But for the most part, my, my inspiration really came from working for myself, being home while my kids are growing up. You know, we've been remote since 2016. It was an opportunity for us to really pave our own way. And I think that was the, the motivation in building the first company. But after we built and sold that one, we realized we got a pretty good team and we really like what we do. 
let's keep doing that instead of trying to build new ideas for, for companies and startups. So you went the route of trying to help other people do this instead of building your mm -hmm. own thing. So like an agency route. I mean, that's basically what I do. I have a marketing agency. I help other clients. But that's always a question that I have. It's always a debate that I have, if you will, you know, whether it's better to do your own thing to because you have all of these skills, like you said, you can build anything or you can build something out. I often wonder whether it would be better for me to just build a product <laughs> instead of trying to help all of my clients build products. So what do you think about the difference between those two models and why did you end up settling on the one that you did? Yeah. And it leads us to the third model, which is the beat the off and path model that we suggested at the yeah. beginning of the, the episode here. But the agency path, it, being an apprentice, I think is uh, undersought opportunity that most entrepreneurs don't go after. And I really honestly think my advice to any 20, 22 year old that's coming out of college is be an apprentice first for an industry that you want to move into. You have zero downside, right? You can become an entrepreneur like I did and come up with ideas for that company. And if the idea doesn't work, you still get a W2 check at the end of the day. You're not mm -hmm. dropped off in the corner of the street. You're not having dinners and like ramen noodle dinners and pasta dinners while your friends are out like at restaurants, there's a prime opportunity in your life to like really learn from an industry. And uh, the, the, the stark difference is that I realized that, you know, that becoming a client in an agency for somebody else gave us the profits and the opportunity to experiment in building a product. And so we built 14 of them with the profits from our agency. And we thought, oh, that's a great model. We should double down on that. What we didn't realize is that you really need about 27 to 30 products to get one successful one. And when you're mm -hmm. bootstrapping that, it's, it's a very long road to see profits from, from startups, from products, and you're not yeah. going to get it right on the first one. And we've been doing an investigation to all the famous people we know of today, you know, Nathan Berry from ConvertKit or any of these individuals that we deem successful now, they failed nine, 10 times before that product hit the shelves and, and was successful. And so we could either continue down that path and keep waiting to the one that, that hits, or we can just be an agency. And then the third model we found was this venture studio model, which is new and different than what a lot of people understand as an agency, but it is providing us both with the profits and the ability to, to be an apprentice for other people. So describe to me how that works then. How, what is the actual sure. system yeah. there? Yeah. Sure. Sure. So the, Agency model is obviously building for other people and right. you are an order taker. Somebody is coming to you and saying, this is the type of product that I want. These are the colors that I want. Can you go do this? And you give them a price and you perform that. Venture studios or startup studios primarily have this, this reputation of providing capital to startups. And the famous one that I know about, I mean, Idea Lab is famous, but they also have a convoluted model because they've been around for so long. But Atomic uh, VC is a model that's come up in the last 10 years. He has a spreadsheet of about 600 ideas and they've built 27 of them. Of those 27 products, you know, they're about five or six that have gone public that they would consider exits. But that is a company that has raised $410 million to perform Oof. those 27 products. Dang. And I don't have the network or the resources to do that. And that's what we think of when we think yeah. of Startup Studio is massive amount of capital, build a bunch right. of really cool startups and go public. And hope well, that one of have, them succeeds. Yeah, exactly right. And and I said at the beginning with the startups, like we realized you needed like 27 of them to cover the costs of the 26 failures with the one that you're actually like doubling down on. Right. And so once we realized those two models, we, we thought, why can't we be a really good product shop? 
that repeatedly builds products over and over and over again and becomes exceptionally good at business models. Understanding where startups can succeed and where startups can accelerate their growth based on the model that we come up with. So not only are we an agency, we're also coming in there and suggesting, hey, we've built 50 products before. We kind of have an idea how the industry works. And we also kind of have an idea of how like this business model can be applied to your industry for some future success. And let's build that together. Let's become partners. And there's no handshake of like equity or anything like that. Sometimes they fall into place. Like my CTO becomes a fractional CTO. My team becomes like an embedded engineering team. But that path allows us to get capital, to get cash up front from the customer to say, let's go build this. And as we build together, we start realizing that, you know, this product is successful, but we're chasing profitability dreams. We're not chasing growth at all costs. So Mm. that's the model that we've fallen into. I call it a bootstrap venture studio. But in reality, Mm. it's the mix between a business model and being an agency. That's very fascinating. So do you typically work then on a retainer? What, what kind of fee structure? How do, how do they work at the outset of these types of things? Yeah, so at the beginning, you know, we're taking at least $100,000 of cash to build the first product. And usually the products are priced at what it would take to build a product. There's no discounts or, or equity discounts there. Um, and once we start that initial engagement, we usually have a fixed price and say, this is what the MVP is going to be released. This is when it's going to be released. And we focus on that deadline because we want them to have trust in us. And sometimes they don't at the beginning, which is fine. Most agencies have a bad rap and hearing that we're going to build a product for a certain price. They're like, yeah, sure. Prove it. And we do. And we've owned 97% of our projects. I think 98% at this point have been on time and in budget. And so once we prove that, then we start playing with these retained team models where you know this specific set of engineers will be working with you for the next year. And we have two or three projects now that have gone on for years because of that fractional CTO, engineering in a box, whatever you want to call it. Mm. But we came up with the business model together and now we're responsible of, of growing that together. That's uh, fascinating. So how did you go about getting these initial step of client? Obviously, when you're growing, getting that critical mass is perhaps the hardest thing. So how did you get started in the beginning? How did you pitch? How did you get your first batch of clients with this new model? Yeah, it's like any agency. You take everything you can get. You say yes to everything. You end up having really bad clients. You fight <laughs> through those days and those months and those weeks yeah. of just pain and suffering and you know, yeah. 2018, 2019, I, I go that. back and like me and my wife look back and like, how did we survive? How did we make oh, it through those yeah. years? Because we had a kid, our house mortgage fell through, you know, the, the startups were really not working. We were trying to figure out like, you look back and you realize I said yes to everything. Mm. Um, but as you keep at it, and I think time tells if you're really good at something, you grow up in the market and people start realizing that are higher up in the market that your services are warranted. And there's the famous thing you see on LinkedIn, a $50,000 client says, here's my invoice. And a $5,000 client says, hey, these line items are $3 off, right? Right. And when you go higher up, you get that better experience, more trust, and you're building bigger projects. And so we're lucky that in 2022, we have great clients, we have great teammates, and we have a lot of fun. And it's been a long road. It's been 10 years. But now at this point, I think we're growing now because it's more fun not because we need to. That's that's so true. And I think very few people, especially people just starting out, they don't realize that. And a lot of people who are solopreneurs or freelancers, they have this vague idea. So I'm going to build a website for you. I'm going to charge you $2,000. And they think that that's a lot of money. 
And they have this vague idea that somebody out there is charging $10,000, $20,000, $30,000, dollars $100,000 for a website, but they have no clue how to bridge that gap or how to go from A to B. And from a certain point of view, I know this because I've been there, from a certain point of view, to say $50,000 for a website, that sounds insane to somebody who's just starting out. That sounds incomprehensible, like the scam of all scams to somebody who's 20 years old or just getting a foot in the door. But then later, as like you said, as you grow within the market, you start to see the complexity of these problems and you start to solve bigger problems. And then quickly, the way that you look at those numbers changes dramatically, right? And then suddenly you realize you can't do anything for $2,000 and very, very little can be done and you know, be profitable, of course, and keep the lights on. So did you begin with the idea of, okay, we're going to have $100,000 as a minimum commitment, or did you work your way up there over, year, over the years? It's been worked out. You, you, you've explained very eloquently the journey that I think a lot of entrepreneurs miss is you hear in the marketplace all the time, just raise your prices, just raise your prices, right. because it's coming from experienced entrepreneurs or experienced agency owners that right. look back and is like, well, what you're doing is like really cheap. You should get a higher market. But the skill set yeah. that isn't taught in that same sentence is you have to be very mature. You have to yes. have a lot of trust and you have to be yep. able to talk to a person that's running a $10 million company and be right. in the same room with them and understand their pain points and problems from your experience and tell them that you're going to solve their problems so they don't have to think of it anymore. And yep. that's like, sure, I can raise my prices, but I also have to have the experience and the maturity to be in that room with the individual that says, this person belongs here. This yeah. agency <laughs> belongs here. And True. you also need like the client work that backs up the experience at that point because they're hiring you based on your previous experience that you can solve it faster than their other options. So yeah. there is this part that like the hustle is required. And I look back and I say like, it was an important aspect of my life, like getting that hustle to the, to the, to the owners. And I never thought $100,000 was achievable. But mm. now I'm looking at it like maybe our next set level is like 500,000 because the people I'm talking to are building hundred million dollar companies, right? And right. our current client base allows us to level up to the next level. Or we yeah. have a lot of fun with these clients right now. This is like a perfect world for us. And I don't need to learn that. I just need to be really good at what we're doing now. But mm -hmm. I knew three years ago that, I, that we needed to level up. Now I'm kind of in the middle of like, maybe we level up a little bit just not that much. So $100,000, your question is like, we, we knew we needed to get somewhere around there, but now yeah. that we're here, we're kind of happy with this, this positioning. And what kind of time frame then are you thinking about? Do you, is it different from project to project? Is it under a year? I mean, do you have a ballpark for these kinds of things? Yeah, oh, like how long it takes to build any of these projects? Yeah, to come exactly, to us? right, yeah. Mm -hmm. A minimum app, Android, iPhone, especially with someone that's creating something innovative for the world is at least three months. For the most oh, part, okay. it's four or five months for an MVP. But you know, okay. once they go past that, they become, they're getting so many customers and clients, you know, they're doing 10,000. We have one that's doing almost uh, 13 million um, items a day. I didn't want to say what the item was because it's confidential, but like, yeah, there's specific projects that grow with us. And that requires not just the engineering team to come up with ideas, but like the support and the infrastructure. Um, but at the beginning, you know, three months, five months, six months, you can get pretty much even Uber apps, Airbnbs, you can get MVPs out for those products in that time frame. That's amazing. How many people do you have working on your team now? How many? Either uh, 67 or... in, okay. in the company. And then we have these startups that are still kind of part of our team. Uh, and we do have engineers built in there, but they also have sales and marketing. 
So it's 67 as, as a core plus the startups. Okay. So I noticed that you've done a lot of stuff. You've done, like we said, you've done apps, internet of things, you're connecting a washer and dryer to an app, all of the, mm-hmm. those types of things. How did you zero in on that as being the niche, if you will, for what you're doing versus anything else that you could have done? Yeah. So IOT, I mean, my patents are in IOT and Pavel, my co-founder came from Intel where he worked on the manufacturing floor of, of circuit, of, of circuit boards and, wow. and processors. Right. So both of us have this manufacturing supply chain concept that has been embedded in us since school. And so when an IOT project comes our way, it's very easy for us to talk to the founders about their problems and what they're experiencing. And we also have a very good sense of hardware. You know, when you build Bluetooth devices or Wi-Fi devices, there is a lot of radio frequencies that you have to deal with and the understanding of connectivity and things like that. Um, I think, like we said a little bit ago, when you grow up as a agency owner, as a venture studio owner, you you gain this experience in an area because you've practiced it. And I think IoT has yeah. just been a place that both Pavel and I have practiced. So if we get three leads, you know, social media app, IoT, and you know, a Uber style driving app, we can talk very well about the IoT app and we might not have the experience in the social media. And I think the clients mm-hmm. can tell that. And so you kind of fall into the niche more than letting it pick you. Because you just end up being good at that thing and you just that's a fascinating concept. Yeah, I struggle with that a lot because there's this always this belief of what what can you be? You can be anything, but then you end up zeroing in in your career and in your life into something. And oftentimes it's not what you expected or it's not what you thought you would do. But perhaps we end up in these places because we're good at them or there's some other force or people can just sort of recognize, hey, you're the guy for this. Yeah. And you seem the most credible in this world, even if that's not necessarily what you saw yourself as. Do you think that that's accurate? Yeah, there's there's an identity crisis, though, that I've realized as I'm older now is when you're younger, you think like I, I thought my first business card business, I was going to be on the top floor in Boston, logo <laughs> right. across the building, you know, name oh, yeah. out there, kind of like the Facebook style. And that was yeah. my identity. I watched Gary Vaynerchuk like on repeat, right, to get pumped oh, up yeah. in the morning to like gotta yeah, work hard and grind more. Yeah, twelve hour days. Twelve hour days. Sell baseball cards on the side. <laughs> right? I'm like ridiculously like, humble. Okay, I'm like the most <laughs> humble guy you've ever met in your life. Sorry, I love Gary. Yep. <laughs> but that's you know you're young and you're hustling and you need that inspiration. He's great for that. He's a great part of my life. That's true. Um, yeah, and I'm past that, right? Like I've become more family oriented, more five o'clock computer off, play with the kids and yeah. hustle's not as important anymore. Um, profitability is, but I think to your question is like, how do you plan for this? I think as a young individual, you need to have that ridiculously unachievable goal that you go towards. And then eventually you'll fall into this place where you're like, you know what? I'm happy, but you have to get past the point of being happy so that you can fall back into it. And I realized that in the last two years that, you know what, we're good where we are. I don't need to keep pushing the team and my team members like I did in 2016 and 2017. We're actually doing well. And that Mm. took a huge turn. It took coaching, it took therapy, it took, you know, a lot of conversations with my wife of trying to figure out how to go backwards from the mindset of like hustle only into like, yeah. hey, you know what? We actually made it. Like, I, we don't need to to be that ridiculous. My life you know, is pretty energy. good right now. We're yeah. okay. Yeah. 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 And it's also funny that you, you reprioritize it because I have a young daughter. I talked about this a lot, but your life 
it's it's hard to let go of things that you did prioritize, especially when you're younger as you transition. This is something that I struggle with a lot because, of course, I came from a background in entertainment and music, which was very cool. My Instagram looked a lot better. I was at a lot of parties. I was DJing, doing all this stuff. I wasn't making even a fraction of as much money as I'm making now, but my life sure looked a lot cooler on the outside. And of course, I know people from that world who are successful in that in my previous dream. And if I look at their Instagram, it, it, a part of me always suffers a little bit because I say, oh my God, they're still out there partying and they're in Ibiza and they're traveling in that world. And then I'm here stuck in my little cube. It's a very nice cube. I've also been remote for, for many years. Uh, and it's just a lot less sexy and even doing this, like a lot less sexy to talk about this versus, you know, Kim Kardashian's makeup style, but it's more profitable, like you said. And it's, it's still hard for me sometimes, I must admit, just to be very honest, to let go of the old dream, even though I know the reasons why I'm in this new thing. And like you said, being there for your kids, I remind myself sometimes if I was a touring DJ, if all of that went well and I was a musician, I wouldn't see my kids. I would be on an airplane all the time. But now because I've worked very hard to build this life where I get to be here, I also get to watch my daughter grow up. I also get to do things with her. So it's just like, I know why I'm here and I know why I made the choices that I made, but it's still sometimes hard to let go of those other things. Do you have any thoughts on that process? Yeah, a lot. I mean, that's the transition I've gone through is because society idolizes those Instagram positioning jobs, whether it's a DJ, a musician, an athlete, a social media star, whatever you want to call right. that, that persona that's very easy to talk about. I mean, parents and friends and relatives, they can promote those individuals very easily and say, hey, look at my son, look at my you know, look at my friend who is meeting Shaquille O'Neal this week and then is talking to DJ Khaled or whoever's famous in the DJ. Well, like, sure. It's very easy for society to elevate and, and repeat that those are the successful individuals. And, you know, you sit in an office just like I do and it becomes lonely and it becomes like I'm not getting out into the world, but I'm doing pretty good. But there's no social recognition around that. There's right. no parents or friends or relatives that are saying, nobody's like, cheering you on. Nobody's cheering you on. You're Nobody's awesome, following buddy. you on your accounts. Yeah, yeah. Like you just have to tell yourself like I made it, but there's literally no feedback loop. And that is one of the hardest mm -hmm. things about being an entrepreneur. Um, I've been lucky to go to conferences, you know, these private conferences with other entrepreneurs who have made it. And all we talk about is loneliness and unrecognized. Yes. And these people like they're doing way better things than I am. And they're famous on social media and they're still talking about how frustrating it is for their parents to recognize them for their relatives to even, you know, what like bestseller book authors aren't even getting calls from friends and relatives. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's one of those things that we deal with as entrepreneurs and it takes a lot in your mind to figure out how to balance that non recognition, especially I'm a three on the Enneagram where I need the achievement. Mm -hmm. I need people to tell me like you're doing well. Yeah. And when you don't get that, you, you go in this downward spiral and it's frustrating to kind of, recover from it's tough to to deal yeah. with and it's tough to like tell yourself yeah you should keep going at this you should keep building in your office by yourself it's it's going pretty right. well because at five o'clock i get to hang out with my kids and then both my kids when they started walking i could just say excuse me i'm gonna go watch my kid for three minutes and i'll be right back like i didn't miss yep. anything and that's yeah. you you aren't flying right and i'm able to be home and you you realize that those moments were way more important in the long run and so what you are mm. doing is is important and I think that's the path I've been on in the last two years. 
what you said about loneliness is, is so profound because we've seen that. I think this whole Twitter debacle with Elon Musk has shown us that if you can be the literal, well, not anymore, but if you can be the literal richest person in the world, the literal richest person in the world, not anymore, and you still clearly have an emptiness inside of you that says, I'm nothing until I get the laughs. I need to be famous and loved and celebrated as a comedian, even though I'm already the rich. Like Clearly, that wasn't enough for Elon, and mm. Twitter is his attempt to get those accolades. And when he doesn't get those accolades, that's you can just see how frustrating it is for him. Mm. And you think, okay, if the richest person in the world, all these businesses, if they can feel that way, what chance do people like us have? You know, yeah. there, there's always that element and that's social media in general, just looking at the people in the, we talk about this all the time, but, but yeah, that loneliness, that's such a, it's such a big piece of that, I think. And, um, the other point that I wanted to make is that we grow and we build and we build our agency. We do these things and we, we take all of these steps and we get so far taking all of these steps and we put all of these pieces in motion because you're here now because of many steps that you did in the past five, 10 years, right? You set up the business, you tried this, you realized how to structure it, you realized how to bring on employees or contract. You, you've achieved and solved a lot of things that nobody knows about that enable you to get to that place where somebody will hand over $100,000, $500,000. But it's easy to forget all of the milestones that we have done and all of the things that we've done because you, you had to work really hard to set up a life where you could see your kids. I did too. And then you get there and it's easy to forget all of that stuff and just say, oh man, I wish I was DJ Khaled. <laughs> I wish, <laughs> you know like, why I wish I was Dave Chappelle. Yeah. But you know why? It's because every month you and I are in the same boat, we can lose it all. And that's as true. an entrepreneur, there's that risk of losing it all. And I went through this year twice, one with the Ukraine war and a second time because of the results of the Ukraine war where we should have lost it all. Like if it wasn't for just sheer ambition, then we would have had a bank, we would have been done, right? And it's that risk that an entrepreneur takes on themselves needs to be rewarded in unlimited upside because it is not fair to the entrepreneur to go through the mind space or the, the head space of just dealing with people and revenues and profits and family issues. And then in our case, it's even goes a step farther we're dealing with 25 individuals who are running for their lives in a country that's being attacked and seized, right? So it, oh it becomes goodness. this responsibility of, of the individuals to be safe, but it becomes a responsibility of us to keep them safe. And so we're going through this loneliness thing at a desk in an office in Boston, but we're dealing with like global like wars. We're dealing with global risk. And it's not the responsibility of one individual to have that on themselves to then survive, right? And so yeah. when you and I think like we made it and we're like, well, why can't we just settle? It's because next month it can all fall apart for some unknown reason because we're in control mm -hmm. and we can't control that aspect, that that decency. So it's it's the challenge of, I don't know, losing it all that keeps us kind of stressed. Yeah. And I think when you read about the stories of people who are it's no secret that the world is tougher in many ways than it's ever been. And certainly for Americans, getting a job that pays the bills, rent is going up, mortgages are going up, housing. It's it's so tough out there just to survive. For any individual, it's incredibly tough to survive. But when you choose to do something like this, you are responsible not just for you and your family's survival, but you're responsible, like you said, for 25, 50 other people's survival as well. 
And that is something that I think people who haven't done that don't necessarily understand the gravity of that because it's easy to see a boss and an employee and you, you can see the way that that relationship can be unfair and, and certainly the balance can always be off and, and unjust. But when it's done well, the people who employ other people care deeply about their employees and their workers. And it's not just quite as simple as, oh, I, I, I'm just going to cut you off this month. If my business struggles, I have to fire you. But that's your family. That's mm -hmm. your livelihood. That's your life. And like you said, you feel personally responsible for these people. And that is a big burden that I think people who haven't done it don't necessarily understand. And it becomes even harder to talk about because it's a buildup of events. You know, I'm sure LeBron James doesn't talk about how his pinky pushes the basketball when he shoots the basketball because he's now focused on the full motion, right? Like he wants to make sure that his hips, arms, head, everything's aligned. And when you have all these practiced, you know, altruisms throughout your life of successes, like you know how to deal with somebody if they're complaining too much, you start to know how to deal with somebody if they miss a few days of work. You figure out processes to put in place for time tracking, right? And you build up these, these practices of, of figuring out how to build a successful company or figuring out how to deal with individuals and, and like you said, the other lives of 25 people, that when something major happens, like a bomb comes through somebody's window while they're sitting at their desk, you're dealing with that now. But to tell a parent, a mom, a kid, a wife, like I'm also dealing with somebody that's complaining that they're getting $500 less this month, it's not in parallel. And so you don't right. have the ability <laughs> to kind of express what you're going through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Because you won't get that, that understanding. It's, it's, uh, I didn't realize that, I guess Ukraine, to their credit, they're an incredible knowledge export community because I know here a lot of people who work in the film industry. I'm near Hollywood. A lot of my friends are in film. And when it comes to things like VFX, Ukraine is top. I mean, so many studios rely on Ukrainian talent to do what mm -hmm. they do. So I didn't know that about your business, but I can only imagine how tough that it must have been. Yeah. It is. It's, it's, it's not over. Yeah, it's still it going is. on. And it's not over. It, yeah, it's it's now the power, right? And we're continuing to deal with things, but you're dealing with people. And, yeah. you know, I gave a talk last year and I said, we often forget that there are humans behind the keyboards and that there are people that are feeding their families behind the keyboard. So when a customer says, why is this late by three days? You know, sometimes there's a human reason behind it. Sometimes it's obvious mistakes yeah. and things like that, but there's also humans behind it. And if you level up to where we are, where you have great clients and you have great customers, and you're truly honest with them and you're like, hey, we'll figure it out. I promise you next month, we'll double down the engineers, we'll double down the team, we'll work twice as hard and we'll figure it out for you. But you gotta trust that we'll, we'll do that for you. But give us a, a little bit of a month here to figure that out. Like give us a break mm. to, to situate with our people because we care about them first. And again, feeding this all the way back to what you had said originally of why, how we got here, explaining that to outsiders of what you're going through as an entrepreneur, just it puts everything in your head. You're dealing with people and profits and revenue. And like, if we don't get this client, we're not going to make numbers this month. And it's all in your head. And so when someone asks yeah. like, how's business? You're like, it's good. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, I, I, even I can, the victories I can, can feel. Hours. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Even the victories can feel Pyrrhic because like you say, you just feel yeah, this is a good month, but what about next month? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I had that. Or say, oh, this isn't a great yeah. month. You should celebrate. And it's hard to celebrate because you say, yeah, but there's still next month. Yeah. There's yeah. still what's coming around the corner. 
Yep. Uh, well, uh, how about this? So for your own personal stress, so, uh, you know, again, we talk about these debates and people who go up through the, the totem pole or the Gary Vee University, if you will, the difference between a product business or a service business. A lot of people discuss this because a service business, you can get cash up front, you grow and you're profitable from day one if you do it right. Product business, you need to invest a lot, but of course, the potential to have a multi-million dollar business. I mean, I think I read at some point that even uh, what is it? Uh, the the Kardashian makeup line. Um, is it? Uh, I'm, I'm not even gonna try. <laughs> One of the Kardashians' <laughs> makeup line, and I, I can't remember who it is, but it's they have like five people working on that business. Five people, and it does ungodly amount of revenue. Hundred tens of millions, hundred million. So the advantage of a product business is that you can theoretically make much more revenue with a smaller team, and once you automate something, it just it just takes more startup at the beginning capital to do that. But the problem with a service business for people like us is that how do you avoid the trap of every new client, every new project that you need to take to keep the lights on doesn't just double up the amount of time, double up the amount of resources, double up the amount of staff so that every new client is just more weight on your shoulders as an individual? Yeah, there's two aspects to this that I've been trained on one of them. And the second one, I think, is a natural happening. But the first one, it took coaching and a lot of coaching and, you know, referrals in the industry of people running hundred million dollar agencies to go back and tell us, focus on the profit and don't use that profit for anything except, you know, your team and yourselves. Don't like give up equity. Don't like invest in these random products. Don't try to cut your prices to like get equity. And agency owners get caught with the product trap that they want to build products because they see unlimited upside. They think that there is a mm -hmm. SaaS product and they see the people online that, you know, they have five employees and hundred million dollars in cash, like you said, and they think that's a great upside for me. What I realize now after building 50 of these is we probably would have to build 50 products on our own with our own ideas, with our own team to get two successful ones that cover the costs of all the other ones. We also would need mm -hmm. capital probably upfront to figure out how to do all this. And that's a road we could go down. And I think any new person that's trying to build a product doesn't realize that they need 10 shots on goal, at least. And the products that they're working on probably should be shut down so they can start idea number two. And when it clicks, it clicks. Kardashians have this unlimited advantage because of their network. So when they hit play, there's, I don't know, 10 million people, that, 100 million people that can just say, oh, I'll try it, right? They can be customers. Right. So I think right. the audience is important. But the two sides of this that I'm trying to hint at is the first one is like, you have to be as a service owner comfortable with the profits. And when I talk to those agency owners that have done really well, they say, take those profits, put it in an investment account and watch it grow faster than a startup would. And mm. we've all read, if you haven't yet, it's a phenomenal book, Lost and Founder, the Rand Fishkin story about Moz. Oh yeah, I have read that. I listened to it. Yep. I don't know what the valuation guy. is. Of, oh, he's, he's awesome. Like that whole book is yeah. awesome. I would love to meet him one yes. day. But he ran a $100 million business and he had a board and he had investors and he had a bunch of people, but he made less than a Microsoft engineer over the course right. of that time frame. It's a very and, sobering book. Yeah. Very. And he had opportunities to sell and he didn't because his board didn't want him to and he did. And HubSpot was a person that was ready to buy. And if he sold then, he would have made more money than he did now. Right, because uh, he was offered... He, yeah, and they they rejected it. So sad. No, he he yeah he kind of rejected it too because the board and him like convinced it. You have to read the book to kind of the, the details of it. I might be messing it up a bit, but 
But the whole moral of the story is like product building is really hard. And the exits are only achieved by those who never stop and keep going at it and have multiple shots at goal. So I think that dream of product building, we've trained ourselves to let go of. And we started thinking, how can we build products for others that are profitable? And once we started down that road, there has been more opportunities for us to achieve the upside while building for other people. And what I mean by that is if we become, let's say, let's pick a product that we all know. Uh, what's, what's a product that's in everybody's house that's like an IoT product? Um, like a smart Ring, home. Amazon, Alexa, Home Hub, yeah. yeah. Ring, let's say Ring is a, uh, a product that we become the engineering team of, right? And we have all this insight of how the monitors work, how the different devices work together, how they can communicate together. And we started on the ground floor as a venture studio and we helped build that product. We have a team that has a job for life. And there is a huge upside to that. It's, there's less stress. We kind of know what we're doing. We're part of the process. And that's just one team, right? And so we can alleviate our, our brain powers from like trying to win that project constantly to being like mm. really good service providers. And if you do yeah. that with multiple companies over the course of 10 years, you now have these teams for life that are building really cool things that do have upside, right? They can increase their engineering team. I'm sure Ring is still growing and hiring. And that upside is way more steady. It's way more feasible for somebody that's running a family and it's way more predictable. And with the right forecasting and the right tools, I believe that like understanding that as an agency owner takes a lot and that path can also be more profitable than, than a product company anyways. Yeah. And I think the other thing to, to bring this full circle is that you're hinting at, we talked about that journey from somebody who's a solopreneur, a freelancer charging X amount, very low amount for their services and them believing that to switch to 50,000, just as an example from 2000 means just taking on more money and greed. They just see that as greed or bloat or whatever. But what you have phrased, I think I saw it on your website somewhere is, you know, you assemble teams. So if a project needs to get done, you are assembling a team of people to get this done. And that is a skill. Anybody who's ever tried to do that understands that that's a skill. I know that's a skill. And that's what I'm doing more and more is, is, is assembling teams. But it's not so much about the amount that you're getting paid, I think. It's as much as the value that you're delivering. And the better question that people should probably be asking who are younger, instead of how can I earn more, it's how can I provide more value to somebody else that would justify that? And that is a very, very different question. It seems simple, but it's a very different question because if you're providing more value, then you say, okay, who do I need? If I can't do this, who do I need that can do it? Who can I hire? Who can I bring on as a temp worker? Who can I assemble as part of this team to really be worth that extra value? And then suddenly you find yourself in a whole different world with a whole different kind of question. And then the money, of course, is much more logical when you're in that kind of world. It's not so hard anymore. And you know what the challenge is, though? As you achieve that, you already have to be looking at the value of the next level so that you can learn what the next level is yeah. while you're executing on the current step ladder that you're on. Because if you don't, like, I, I know we said we went from zero to a hundred thousand like products and we're probably good, but I'm already spending hours and hours and days and days learning about Clayton Christensen and the jobs to be done framework so that I can level up to a larger business opportunity that has that level of interest in a venture studio. Um, and mm. so, even if you achieve what you're saying and like if, if you value up and like you think you're now performing at that level, 
you already have to start learning the next level up while you're executing. And that balance is the only way agency owners can continue to grow. What advice do you have then to level up and to learn? I mean, obviously books, of course, are plentiful, but what else has been particularly useful for you? Yeah, I mean, the biggest things for my life has been, I got a business coach right at the beginning of 2020 and it had nothing to do with COVID. It was more just, I needed to be a better person. I needed to figure out who and what I wanted as an individual because I was pushing my team in a path that wasn't actually proven. Um, I was pushing them down the startup mode. I was trying to get them to build products that didn't have a path in the future. And so I needed first to like balance what my sanity was. And so that is the first advice I'd give any entrepreneur. Like once you hit the one to $2 million range and you have a legitimate team, like figure yourself out so that people wanna be around you and people wanna go to the next level with you. Um, So that's the first piece of advice. And then the second one I would say is like just culture, like really focus on culture of the team. Um, I was just listening to a podcast from the founder of of Priceline. He's out here in Boston. And he had had suggested that like his order of operations is culture, uh, his team culture profits. And it's a really true piece of advice is that if you focus on the right team and you have the right like mindset of people really like working together, the profits will kind of come. But the second, like after you figure yourself out, you really have to figure out like what people want to work for. Why do they want to be in your company? Because it stinks to hire every month. And we are so privileged this year where we have a hundred percent retention. We haven't lost a single individual to, you know, leaving for a different job or, you know, needing to fire them because we're downgrading. Uh, We have grown as a company. And I think culture is a huge part of that. You know, we were able to support the team through the war, but we were also able to support all the other individuals around the world that were dealing with us while dealing with the war. And I think that goes to show that our culture really has been solidified at this point. And now it's a matter of continuing that that aspect of teamwork, culture work, and then the profits will just come. That's uh, some fabulous insight. I know we got cut a little bit short here. We're kind of going over our time because we had some tech- technical difficulties in the beginning, but this right here is me doing that. You're farther than me. So this is me trying to learn from you. And you've shared a lot of very valuable insights and wisdom here. Um, I'm definitely going to think about a business code. I think the reason that I haven't done it is there's just so many scammers out there. Everybody brands themselves as a business coach, right? Everybody on Instagram is a business yeah. coach, an entrepreneur coach, and just buy their course for $5,000 and you're solved, right? Yeah. It's just been very tough uh, to find. I see, see it as like a, a marriage or a relationship. It is. I like the idea in theory, but they better be good. They better be worth it. You know how How do you find one that's good? Yeah, that's that's my last question. People like I'm so happy with mine, and I think the the majority of people are in your shoes. They they don't see the correct connection. But what I did, I think, is the same way I find my employees, especially the ones that directly work for me. I see a need in my life, or I see a need of like what I'm gapped. And when I heard my my business coach talk on a podcast, I said that's what I want to be. That's the person I want to be. That's the type of mindset I want to be. And he wasn't a business coach at the time. And I said, like, I will train under you. I am interested to learn from you. Like, what does it take? And it just so happened that he had also been considering to to start this for 20 individuals. And so I got lucky in that sense. But I think like chasing the employees that you really want to work with, the apprentices that you, I mean, the, uh, the bosses that you want to be an apprentice for, chasing the business coaches that you want to work for, that want to work for you. I think that's the important aspect of it because if they come to you, 
it never really works out. You you need to find what you need for your your path forward. Right. That's very wise words. Well, I very much appreciate you taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure to get to know you. I'm excited for what comes next. You've achieved some pretty big things, and I know you're going to, well, you're either going to keep going or you're going to stay right here and be happy with it. <laughs> I guess that's really we'll up see. to you. But <laughs> Growth is um, always on very the future, much, so we'll see. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I'm sure you will, just based on who yeah. you are. But uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, uh, before we wrap it up, I'd like to leave the last word to you. So however you want to close this out, promote anything you want to promote or say whatever you want to say. Yeah, I'll just continue on the topic that we're basically saying is if you're really struggling with trying to figure out like what your next steps are, really focus on yourself. You know, read the books that are not necessarily self-help books, but read the founder books, you know, the Rand Fishkin books, Shoe Dogs, uh, those books that show how an entrepreneur went from step one to step a thousand or whatever step they're on now. And you'll realize that they took a lot of swings. They took a lot of at-bats. The Beatles played in, you know, Copenhagen for... I don't know, eight years, something like that, repetitively together, like 10 hours a night. No one talks about that. They just talk about the Beatles on stage for the you know, 1960s. But you'll find that any autobiography around a founder that's building a company comes with years and years of getting up at the plate, missing, and then getting up to the plate again and again and again. And I think that's the advice that we've kind of dug into on this podcast of, you're not going to find it on the first try, but you're also not going to find it just because you're following the people that have. You need to actually take the attempts yourself. And I think that's an important lesson that I've learned the hard way. And I think everyone has learned the hard way that's kind of made yeah. it, but like also is trying to give advice as well. Well, that's fabulous advice across the board. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time, Andrew. And uh, with that, the official podcast is over. <laughs> <laughs>